Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 201. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Kate Crochel. Hello! So happy to be here. And I'm very happy to have you as one of my most explicitly curious friends to talk about a topic I think requires a bit of curiosity. And the title of this episode refers to what I see as a fundamental conflict between our culture and vulnerability. And vulnerability continues to be discussed all over the web in self-help and psychological texts. I'm not claiming either you nor I will have the end-all, be-all opinion. But I was thinking recently that looking at American culture specifically, ours is one which encourages not only a lack of vulnerability, but I think a denial of what really makes vulnerability helpful and valuable. And there are countless examples I could touch upon. For example, our common ritual of how are you good or what's up, not much, speak to an unspoken and understood level of engagement. And at least from where I stand, it's a given that we won't engage with other people unless otherwise stated. And for critics who might say that it's uncomfortable or unpleasant to get into those feelings, I would respond that exercise is similar until you get used to it. And just because something's unpleasant doesn't mean we should discount it altogether. Now, there will probably be countless examples you and I come up with that illustrate or maybe even counter-argue against this belief. But when I first brought the topic to you, you were interested in discussing it. And I'm really curious to know where your mind went. Yeah. Well, when you first mentioned this to me, I immediately thought of having lived abroad. I spent some time in Denmark and in France. And in Denmark, especially when you greet someone, you actually don't ask them, how are you? Because when you say, it actually means, how are you doing? Like you reserve that for your very good friends that you haven't seen in a while, or you're like ready to sit down and talk. Even the like less formal vasa, which means what's up, is like once you just hug and say hi, and then there's like a kind of a pause. So then you're like, okay, are we ready to get into this? We're actually going to go for it. It was jarring for me at first to live abroad and just be like, oh, I can't bring my American custom (laughs) because I was used to the sort of like ping back and forth of hi, how are you? Fine. What's up? Not much. But I did feel like once I broke the surface with Danes and had true friendships, that greeting became unnecessary because it was just wasting time. I was happier to go into the sort of more vulnerable conversations quicker because you were just not having the five minutes where you're like, oh, I don't know the weather. And I do think that, like you said, in the US, we do tend to slide on the surface. I don't know if it's like a social currency or it shows that you're just normal and you like small talk because it's easy. I don't know. It seems to be just kind of exhausting to me. So you and I have stopped with the practice entirely. When we see each other, we don't say, how are you? We give it a minute and then we say, okay, we're going to actually catch up. And I really appreciate that. And on that front, I appreciate your willingness to do so with me because there are other friends who, whether because of cultural comfort or because of intellectual disagreement, don't want to. And in the context of those friendships, I respect that. But I also appreciate that you brought up the U.S. as a country because one of my first musings in reflecting on vulnerability went to divorce rates. And it's notorious that in the U.S., one in every two marriages fail although 2017 numbers put that rate at about 46%, which is not the highest globally. That goes to Luxembourg at 87%, followed by Spain at 65%, France at 55%, and Russia at 51%. 
And while it should wholeheartedly be noted that there are many factors in healthy relationships as well as those which end in divorce, I am of the belief that vulnerability probably plays a role. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are partners who weren't previously vulnerable before marriage, either because they wanted to secure that relationship or their comfort level had not crossed a certain threshold that, after the wedding happened, became more willing and maybe shared more of who they really were. And at that point, you get into fairness. And if, in fact, it's unfair to a romantic partner to not be vulnerable to a certain extent. Now, romantic relationships could be a whole subtopic all to themselves, but I think the principle extends to all relationships, not necessarily with strangers, but friends, etc. And I believe there is a certain level of vulnerability that may not be expected in our culture, but may be humanly healthy for all people to engage in a degree of honesty with one another. And there's a great deal that comes out of vulnerability, which is lost when we play a certain invulnerable stereotype or archetype. I like what you say about play. What jumped to mind for me was immediately playhouse. And I do think that there is kind of like a cultural imperative to abide by certain standards or expectations that don't really leave a lot of leeway sometimes for you to be your true authentic self. Even in a romantic relationship, like you said, you might not fully know your partner ever or before you get married, but how much opportunity do you have to actually create that honesty and that legitimacy with another person before you walk down the aisle and how much of it is expectations from your family or pressure to have a kid or to define your relationship more quickly by moving in together or putting a ring on it. There is ways in which we can renegotiate the standards of our own relationships, either romantic or just friendship, by being vulnerable at the outset, because it leaves you more room to discuss what you actually want out of the relationship and less miscommunication and unmet expectations. Because I do think that it's easy for you to say, yes, this is what I want, and to be very clear and almost dictatorial about it when you get into something with someone and then things change. And how do you create that open boundary of communication so that neither one of you is set up for disappointment or feeling like you've been duped into something that you didn't sign up for? And I think the key to that is vulnerability. But maybe as Americans, we have less of the space to do that because of the high cultural expectation to conform to certain ways of life. I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. And although I don't want to get into a whole like tangent about feminism, I do think that I've been doing a lot of introspection and maybe this is my own attempt at vulnerability right now. But thinking about the ways in which women specifically communicate vulnerability and a lot of times it might be through anger. So I'm reading this interesting book called The Dance of Anger right now, which talks about how sometimes we as women, we overfunction and we feel other people's feelings for them because we have been, you know, told through our culture to do that or that's just the expectation. What it ends up creating is resentment because the feeling that you're having on behalf of someone else is not then legitimized by that person because that person doesn't feel like they need to feel it. You're the angry person. You're taking this injustice that's been done to your loved one. And you're saying, well, aren't you upset about this? I can't believe that happened. But then that actually takes away from the other person to actually feel the feeling. So what we think is vulnerability as women sometimes then turns into anger and resentment. And I don't think that's healthy. 
But I do think that has something to do with how we are brought up as women in our culture. I especially appreciate your phrasing of sharing your own vulnerability because I'm convinced that walls, if those are the opposite of vulnerability, and vulnerability are both contagious. In a groupthink or sociological framework, we often imitate the behavior of people around us. That's how we learn and that's how we generally sustain and produce an overall public peace. And I suspect that as more people, yourself included, share moments of vulnerability with those around them, those can be the sparks that lead individuals to say, well, I've been having feelings too. I think if this person shares them, maybe I'm allowed to open up as well. And then you hear what people really think. And I won't claim that those periods are always easy, but I do think they're necessary because there is a certain truth to vulnerability, to what people are really thinking about, and not only a subjective truth, but an objective truth that in life human beings are not invulnerable, we will all die at the end of our lives, and over the course of our lives we'll suffer countless hardships, both emotional and physical, and various difficulties and obstacles. And to me what's compelling about vulnerability, at least in a somewhat reductive philosophy, is that it recognizes that we share these things, and that we don't need to have all the answers or come away unscathed from our battles. I look at schools where kids are afraid of failure or are devastated by a low grade, and I think, yeah, there's something relatable in that, but at the same time, are you learning? And I worry that they're not because they're fixated on this image of perfection, on letter grades that don't reflect the long process of learning. And to come back to people, in your point of reference, women feeling vulnerabilities for other people, I really appreciate that point because there can be a dark side to vulnerability to the point that it consumes you, perhaps on behalf of someone else. So it isn't even your story that you're struggling through, and that's not fair. And I would point to, at least from my perception, and if the audience feels differently, please let us know, the tremendous imbalance that I see between men and women culturally taught to feel no vulnerability and to maintain realms of vulnerability respectively. And we could absolutely get into, as I think is its own large topic, men feeling or not feeling vulnerability and various expectations of men dating back millennia that I think deny certain realities. If a loved one dies, or if you experience a tremendous failure, that's human, that's natural. But in denying certain vulnerability, I also think we end up denying certain features of our own humanity. Yeah, totally. Have you ever walked down the street or just been out in public and just seen someone that is just exuding that really complicated combination of the hurt that they are feeling and the pain that they have in their lives, but they're not showing it and they're trying so hard to protect it that they've puffed themselves up? I don't know if that's an image that you can conjure, but that's what I'm thinking about. And maybe it has to do with sort of, like you said, you learn to put on a facade towards the external world. And does it have to do with, like you said, how men are expected to protect and hold in a lot of feelings? Is it hegemonic masculinity? Is it patriarchy? What are the societal forces that are at play, especially in the States right now, where we have such division? Whose job is it to feel vulnerable? And how do we pull it out of people in a healthy way? And when is there a need for protecting one's own and one's heart from being stomped all over in the public sphere? I do think that there's a boundary that you should be able to healthily set up, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a cookie cutter way that people do it. 
I'm thinking of Brene Brown, who is probably the premier scholar on vulnerability and how she talks about, especially in her TED Talk, about how vulnerability is kind of the key to everything. But we do so much work to prevent that from happening that we sabotage ourselves. And I think about that a lot, like how can we make the small steps in our daily lives to give a space for others to be vulnerable if they choose, but also maintaining the boundaries that they might have set up for themselves if it's too painful to cross that boundary. Boundaries remind me of a bullet point I wanted to make sure we touch on, which is Humans of New York. And for those who don't know, it began as a vastly popular Facebook page with portraits of New Yorkers accompanied by rather lengthy and often profound personal and deep captions that come from the New Yorkers who were photographed. And while these stories often get very personal into deep and difficult times in the subject's lives, what I find really telling are the commenters who speak about how amazing it is that these people are opening up how they wouldn't know what to do if they were in Brandon, the photographer's shoes, asking people to open up like this, and also how genuinely shocked they are that other people have these things to say, which to me is a very bleak reflection that we don't expect other people to have these complicated and fascinating truths within them, when I would argue if someone else trusts you enough and you speak the same language, they will tell you amazing stories and amazing things they've felt, observed, experienced. Because to be human is to be, to an extent, a journalist, if not for many, for one. And it genuinely saddens me that we don't tap into that more often. And I know it would take some cultural reworking, perhaps over centuries, but I sincerely don't believe that that kind of profound insight and personal truth is relegated to the city and people of New York or any of the other global citizens that Brandon has also photographed. And I wonder if it has something to do with the wall that is placed between you and your screen, that as a commenter or as someone reading the stories, you feel like you are part of that vulnerability, but you are within a safe enough distance that you can sort of comment and have the avatar of your internet personality come through more than you would even if you met that person on the street. I think the fact that it is in New York and you're just being exposed to countless people day after day after day, it's very exciting, but it's also numbing. So having the ability to read the stories and feel that empathy through a screen means it's kind of at your own pace almost. So maybe that's like why Humans of New York has been so great and successful is you are able to tap into that human side of yourself that you might have to turn off when you're in public because it's just too much stimulus and you have to get on with your day. But I want to come back to this idea of how we process this affronting of humanity right in front of you. I'm really interested in that public versus private sphere sort of divide because I'm someone who accesses stories as a way to break out of my own sort of monotonous mindset. I do that through narrative. I love reading, watching TV, anything that has some sort of a human aspect through a story. I think it's how we as humans process everything that's going on in our brains and in our hearts. And I think maybe this is just because I'm in media and this is my job and this is how I make sense of the world. But if more people are feeling like they can't tap into certain emotions, try a movie, try a TV show, try a podcast. I think those forms of media are there really for you to expand out of your own hangups, but also have a chance to confront what might be bothering you. And that's maybe how we are actually as 
our culture, we're pretty good at being vulnerable. We just transform it into something that's fiction, but it actually brings back a bigger truth or something more authentic than we could have processed on our own without that framework of a story. You're making some really stellar points. I'm especially happy that you bring up TV, movies, or other media because I have this suspicion, call it a concern, that while media can do a great job bringing out our emotions, I think it can become a crutch. And I worry that for some people, perhaps for our culture as a whole, we go to media not necessarily to remind us of what it means to be vulnerable, as I do feel it's a muscle which must be flexed to maintain a certain health, but instead to almost do the emotional work for us. We see famous actors crying or feeling certain things, and on some level, we feel the catharsis rather than doing the work or the processing yourself. And in bringing up more firmly rooted forms of media, like television or movies, it's also worth mentioning social media and certain platforms that have emerged in the 21st century. In my mind, YouTube is at the top of the list for being absolutely ridden with trolls or people who are trolling. And for the uninitiated, trolling is essentially doing whatever it takes to get a rise out of someone, often involving really malicious and dark language that you wouldn't say to someone in person. And interestingly, there are certain creators I follow who have started responding to trolls. And the trolls will then turn around and say, oh, I didn't mean to say that terrible thing. I didn't actually know you read this. And I think that anger, whether jokingly expressed or otherwise, that often comes out in really gruesome forms, speaks to feelings people have that they don't have a proper outlet for. And I think vulnerability as an umbrella term could mean a lot of things. But I think its opposite is really visible in those kinds of repression. Even look at road rage or people on now famous YouTube videos yelling at fast food employees. There are countless examples of rather uncomfortable and inappropriate behavior, but I imagine they come from very understandable feelings that simply have no other path in our culture. I love what you say about trolling being a sort of outlet for one's pain. It's just kind of displaced or there's no healthy outlet for it. If you haven't listened to the This American Life episode where Lindy West confronts her troller, it's incredible. She sort of, I'm not going to spoil it, but she actually goes and meets him in person, I believe, or maybe talks on the phone. And it just really brought to light this idea of we're all harboring so much pain. And then, like you said, with road rage, we just want to let it out. But it's not directed in the right way. If we aren't told how to have a healthy way to confront sadness, pain, anger, etc., it's going to come out. You know, it's just like you press it down, you press it down and it's going to explode. But what you say about having media be emotional outlet for you can be, like you said, a double edged sword. It can be a really great way to access feelings that you haven't been able to process and sort of unleashing it as a catalyst. Or it can be an emotional crutch. I do not know how many times I have watched the same episode of the same television show that I love when I'm feeling sad to make myself cry because I'm just like, oh, I have to feel the thing and I can't get it on my own. So I'm going to use this as something that'll get me to cry and be emotional. But I wonder how effective it actually is in a culture where we do generate a ton of media. I would say that maybe we're good at using stories to access vulnerability because a good story isn't really a good story unless it has some sort of catalyst or evolution of character or something that makes us feel really human, right? 
But how is that in line with the fact that in our daily lives, we are not very vulnerable people? Do we all just sequester ourselves in our basements and watch movies with the lights turned off on Saturday night when we don't have plans because we would rather do that than actually talking to a friend if we're in a time of need? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe we're just all accessing these vulnerable parts of ourselves in the comfort of our own home where it's less scary by ourselves than actually opening up to someone. And what's the effective path to true sort of peace and comfort in oneself? I don't know. It's a big question. And one whose answer I suspect might lie in creation. You talked about making media, and one of my earliest thoughts related to this topic, again being the opposition between our culture and vulnerability, is that we have a response to natural feelings, which is to cover, to create, rather than to be, to sit, to allow, if you will. And I'm sure there are a lot of people for whom that sounds passive, or even cowardly, but I would point to examples like photoshopped models on the covers of magazines and their audiences, potentially young teenagers whose skin isn't perfect and whose bodies haven't fully developed, worrying that they will never attain a certain perfect ideal or image that even as adults in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, we also will not attain because it reflects a sculpting rather than an acceptance of oneself. And again, I can already hear critics saying, well, Kip, what about self-improvement, etc.? But I think there is a fine line between adding to what we think we are and masking the person who's truly underneath. I would point to capitalism and say that if you want the market to continue, there has to be a certain economic engine. People have to want to buy things. And with certain products, dissatisfaction is key. Your smartphone might be fine now. But if marketers can convince you that the next one is just a little bit better, you might spend that money. And I'm of the belief that that dissatisfaction accumulates. If you think you have good clothes now, but someone can argue that your clothes look old and ratty by comparison, well, there's further dissatisfaction. And again, it's a purchase or adding to your possessions that convinces you you'll be okay. And I don't think that really gets at someone's personality, what they fundamentally are as a human being. And for me, clothes make the perfect example because they are literally covering up our forms. I'm not proposing actual nudity, but emotional nudity might not be a bad idea every once in a while. So I was in the bookstore the other day and I saw this amazing book called As Soon As You're Comfortable In Your Skin, It Starts to Sag. So good. And I think that really speaks to what you're saying is that we cover up through our external possessions who we actually are authentically because we want people to receive a certain image of us outside. But it's kind of a waste of money sometimes, honestly. And what you said when you're talking about adding or gaining something for yourself, what is the difference between that and sort of this concept of maximizing, right? Because capitalism often says that you have to maximize. In our quote-unquote American dream sort of myth, we say you got to maximize, optimize, you pursue, you're successful. And if the clothes make the man, then you got to have the nice clothes, right? But how does that jive with actually improving yourself, not in the sort of self-help way, like how to get a guy in 10 days, not that kind of self-help, but the real like I'm reading this book because I actually have some work to do or going to therapy or, you know, actually digging into the parts of yourself that you are puzzled about or struggling with. How do we represent that externally? Like I'm very forthcoming with saying, yeah, I was talking to my therapist about blah, blah, blah. 
but does that make other people uncomfortable? How do I reflect the authentic nature of what I'm questioning or struggling with for myself in the world and my hangups and my insecurities in a way that's going to make other people want to talk about it and not just get scared, but also maintain a firm, strong boundary in case people are just not into what I have to say. (laughs) This idea of maximizing versus being authentically improving and expanding your notion of self, I think is really interesting. And the way that I like to do it is to articulate my own vulnerabilities and say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm questioning. But I know that that can put people off. And I would love to know what you think about how you approach that same question, either with me or with others. It's a really good question. And one, frankly, I suspect I will struggle with for the rest of my social life because I love meeting and talking to people. The first thought that comes to my mind is that vulnerability can be an offering, but it can also be a request. And so when I enter in conversations with people, especially people I'm just getting to know, what really excites me is that not only are they a galaxy unto themselves, but they are, to me at least, an unexplored galaxy. There are so many questions I could ask them because I know virtually nothing. And so in those opening conversations, at least as far as trying to get vulnerability to emerge between two people... I try and find questions that are a balance of vulnerability and a bit of superficiality if they don't want to get too deep, but ultimately questions I think will lead to stories or interesting traits about that person, and I'm no master of it, certainly in a culture that isn't always vulnerable. People can give you puzzled or even concerned looks, but I would hope that it comes across as genuinely interested and humanizing because I see them as humans, and I'm fascinated by their humanity. But those are my thoughts on how to break the vulnerability wall, if you will. And that brings us back to our original question, right? Is our culture inherently opposed to vulnerability because of these expectations of going too far, diving too deep, or not respecting boundaries? Or is it really preventing us from having authentic connections? I don't have the answer to that, but I do think that the more we can actually use curiosity, like you mentioned at the beginning, to piece together the tidbits of our fellow humans that are just incredibly unique, that's going to show interest. And just asking the question and being a curious person, I think will give others the opportunity to open up on their terms. And maybe we can combat this hegemonic, stereotypical lack of vulnerability that we have as Americans. So if you're requesting vulnerability from someone else, I do think that it requires some sort of sense of whether that person is going to be open to receiving the request and then countering it almost. And that's sometimes where I trip up and I wonder about my own interpersonal skills in assessing people's reactions. When I was growing up, I was taught that question asking is the key to getting to know people. And it also shows that you're polite because you're interested. You're curious about them. You want to know what's going on. In other people's upbringings, that was considered rude, right? Which I learned some of my really close friends have told me, like, you let the person articulate what they want to articulate on their terms because it might be too much. Maybe you don't want to answer the barrage of questions that you've received. So that's become a criteria for me. And when I assess friendships and potential new relationships, romantic or platonic, when I meet a person, I want to understand that dynamic between are they curious and is that something that I want to receive or am I just being way too forthcoming and rude in their eyes? And so it's a constant dance and you have to actually have pretty good interpersonal skills. And sometimes I'm like, whoops, was I just really obtuse? Maybe. 
Those differences in upbringing are really interesting to me because they speak to how a society wants you to deal with vulnerability, and although we may not have phrased it as such in this conversation, for as much as I love vulnerability, it is ultimately a choice that lies within each individual person. And so perhaps a culture should never touch vulnerability, and people should be allowed to process or reveal it on their own terms. It's my concern that we've become so afraid and skittish around vulnerability that we're now cloistering ourselves up, and thus this topic. But I think another way to maybe convince people of the power of vulnerability, if it's not through media, like TV or movies, or occasional questions like you or I might offer in conversation, when sharing a vulnerable story with someone else, hopefully they requested it, or you made a little room for yourself to share it in conversation, there are some really beautiful and indescribable moments that occur when you hear someone else's story and it resonates with you because you experienced something similar. And often a story by definition will contain some vulnerability. Either it shows change, maybe a downfall, an obstacle you couldn't overcome. I think a lot of good stories have, even if only temporarily, vulnerability within them. And so I would encourage people, as I think is fundamental to good human practices, to tell more stories and not to feel ashamed if you're speaking at length and also to ask other people for theirs because vulnerability up front might be a heavy request. But if you ask for stories, I'm relatively convinced you'll get vulnerability out of it. But of course, Kate, these were some of our thoughts. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this conversation? Yeah, I guess I would ask you to do kind of what Kip is suggesting. Maybe look at a time when you don't want to access a vulnerable state and see what your emotional crutch is. Like I was saying, how many times am I home on a Saturday night watching a TV show that I love because it makes me feel something? Maybe that's a good exercise that we can all do is just like notice when we're using media or storytelling to help us with something. And when is it detracting from the work we need to do on ourselves? Like when is it the easy way out? Maybe that's a little homework assignment that people can do is just notice when they're using a story or media for something that they're not ready to process themselves or access themselves, or if they're using it as a sort of emotional safety blanket or like a a warm, fuzzy moment that would be hard to access on your own. And as a similar homework assignment, if you will, in cases where you are or may in the future be vulnerable and someone responds with discomfort, If you can find a polite but genuine way to ask, why did this instance make you uncomfortable, you're likely to learn something about that person, and they may even share their own story of vulnerability, if they're so willing. And I'm well aware, at least from my position, that I've described vulnerability in an idealistic state, but I'm well aware that there are darker sides to it, times and places to let it out, And Kate, as you so well illustrated, examples of vulnerability gone wrong. For example, emotional labor that women often do. Oh, yeah. Can I just also mention that I understand that it does take a certain amount of safety to feel like you can be vulnerable with someone. And that is not an obligation to be vulnerable. Do what you got to do to protect yourself. And I'm acknowledging that there is a certain privilege also. Even saying, I have a therapist that comes from a certain level of privilege. So I'm not saying that vulnerability at all costs is where we should be heading. I do think that healthy boundaries and survival instincts are important. But if you do feel like you have the room and the desire to become more 
vulnerable or interested in exploring your own insecurities or weaknesses through interactions with others, go for it if you feel safe. And on the note of sharing and vulnerability, I really appreciate you coming on and talking so candidly and with so many great insights today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kip. This was really fun. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and Kate and I are not the only two people who have ever experienced or enjoyed vulnerability. So if you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback you'd like to share, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.